Right. Good morning, everybody. I want you to know uh, how great it is for Lori and I to be out here. Uh, I could tell you a lot of spiritual reasons why that is, and they'd all be true. Our friendship with Reese and Mary Kay and the Baltic Nordic work that we were able to do over the last couple days. But really, uh, to be outside with uh, very few clothes on uh, has been like this unbelievable little respite for us. We are struggling through, uh, probably it'll turn out to be the snowiest, coldest winter in history in Detroit. And uh, we've already had about eight feet of snow uh, and uh, temperatures way, way down. Like I was out the other day in, in, uh, in Detroit. I went to the store and I just had a, a light pullover golf, kind of a golf jacket on. It was 16 degrees. That that felt warm to me, and uh, and, I, and I'll tell you here's 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 how bad it was. You say, Tom, how cold is it? I'll tell you how cold it was. Uh, I got in my uh, my little red pickup truck and I went to uh, the gym to work out a little bit. And uh, Lori and I had signed up at the Y the beginning of the year and. And so I'm fumbling, getting all my stuff together to go inside. And I, you know how you run out of hands uh, when, when you're gathering stuff? So I pull the key out of the ignition, stick it in my mouth, kind of grab this. And the key had frozen to my tongue. And so I thought, <laughs> that's, that's how cold it was. So... You can uh, go ahead and start making your way to 2 Kings chapter 6. If that weren't enough, uh, our city has been in the news for a number of other reasons. Uh, our former mayor and all the city councilmen are a good handful. Some other people, some businessmen in the area are all serving time in prison right now for embezzling. Uh, last year, Detroit uh, declared bankruptcy. I don't know if you'd heard that. The largest city in America ever to declare bankruptcy. And it wasn't a surprise. Everybody knew it for the last 20 years that the city was bankrupt. But it's finally good that someone finally officially recognized that it was. Uh, there have been murders and uh, all kinds of things that have set records across the country. They say within the city limits of Detroit proper, about a third of all the homes are abandoned, burned out, or deserted in some way. There really are uh, areas of the city you go through, and it's reminiscent of looking at pictures of post-World War II uh, Europe, where buildings and factories and residences are just bombed out and rubble is there. It really is, in a lot of ways, a messed up city. It's not the whole city. You've probably got a couple black eyes around the Los Angeles area as well. But this really is descriptive of the city. There was a time where the unemployment rate a few years ago was almost 20%. And uh, over the course of time that Lori and I have been in Detroit, about 100 members of the church have moved out just to find work in other cities. Uh, good news is we had our first move-ins in a long time already this year. So praise the Lord! In spite of the weather. They're not real bright people because they came back. Uh, but nonetheless, we love them. 
Detroit is a city, and the title of the message is A City Under Siege. It's being attacked, and all these things are difficult to deal with. The weather, and the politics, and the poverty, and the bankruptcies, and all that kind of stuff. But you know, the real issue in the city is really none of that. The real issue is the power of Satan is still alive and well in Detroit, and he has wreaked havoc on our city, and he's doing it in your city too, although you may not have the visible evidence of some of this, but it's going on in Los Angeles and around the world in exactly the same way. Satan does not sleep. There's a story from... After the fall of Jerusalem in chapter or in uh, A.D. 70, there's a story about a city, the last holdout of the Jews called Masada. I don't, there was even a movie made a number of years ago. And it was about how that was the last stronghold that the Romans were trying to get rid of the Jews. They had all gathered there. There was a mass suicide because they did not want to be captured. They would rather have killed themselves than to be killed by the Romans. But during the course of time, the Romans built these siege ramps, surrounded the city, cut it off. They didn't attack it immediately. They just slowly starved the city out until there was great famine and great desperation within the city. And they had built these ramps then to finally make the final assault. Piles of rubble that you can still see to this day that are left over from the siege of Masada and how they just kind of waited it out until it was easy to destroy. There's a lot of spiritual parallels with that because that's exactly what Satan is trying to do with each and every one of us every day of our lives. He's trying to cut us off from God, from disciples, from goodness, and from our Bibles, and from prayer. And if he can slowly starve us out, then eventually he'll weaken us to a point where it doesn't have to take a big thing to knock us out. It could take something simple because we have no strength from our spiritual uh, starvation. Let's let's look in chapter 6, beginning in verse 24. Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. There was a great famine in the city, The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pod for five shekels. I did the math on this to kind of help myself understand this. The donkey's head was approximately $640 in our currency today. Uh, Now, I would... I would go out and buy a side of beef or something like that, but for a donkey head, probably not. Uh, I don't know if you've had any experience with this. Uh, I used to live in San Diego before I met Lori, and I had a good friend that grew up in Tijuana, Mexico. And he invited me down to his family cookout, which I was eager to do. They didn't speak English. He did. It was a backyard cookout, and uh, I was looking around trying to figure out where the meat was, you know, for the barbecue. They had the tortillas already and all the other stuff, the guacamole and cilantro, and I was looking for the meat. 
And then about halfway into the party, they go over to this little fire pit and they put out the fire and they peel back the burlap that was underneath the fire and there in the ground, slow cooked over a long period of time, was a cow's head. And uh, a delicacy for some, for not, perhaps not for all of us. Amen? And so we uh, partook of the brains and the jowls and uh, things like that. I don't know what they paid for it, but I don't think it was this much. Nonetheless, these were desperate times. And food was at a rare a rarity. People needed to eat. They needed to survive. And, man, they just resorted to desperate measures. We read on, and if that weren't bad enough, let's see what happens next. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried to him, Help me, my lord, the king. The king replied, If the Lord does not help you, where can I help you? Or what can I help you for? From the threshing floor? From the wine press? Then he answered her, What's the matter? She answered, This woman said to me, Give me your son so we may eat him today, and tomorrow we'll eat my son. So we cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, Give me your son so that we may eat him. But she had hidden him. When the king heard the woman's words, he tore his robes as he went along the wall. The people looked, and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. He said, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. I apologize for reading it. But it's in the Bible, and so we've got to read it at least once in our lives. It's a factual story. Scholars debate over the exact meaning of this, whether the boys were alive and then were killed, or they were already dead and then they ate them for sustenance. But I can't imagine ever being that desperate in life. To even let that kind of stuff enter my mind. And you're probably the same way, aren't you? But it just shows you that if we get so desperate that we start to rely on our own reasoning and intellect and take matters into our own hands, there's a depth that we can go to that just is kind of shocking. And uh, a lot of times it only comes out when things are very desperate in life. I don't know if you've ever felt anything similar to this, but where you're so panicked, so desperate, so distraught, that instead of just waiting on God and trusting in God and being open about what you're feeling with other brothers and sisters, you take some steps and take matters into your own hands. Uh, I was baptized in 1982 down in Tampa, Florida, and over the course of these years, I've seen a lot of people that became Christians, but I've also seen some that are no longer Christians. And a lot of times what started the whole process of leaving the Lord was that they were slowly cut off. They weren't as spiritual as when they started out. 
The Bible became a good suggestion in something instead of something that actually gives us life. And then some desperate thing happened in their life, some tragedy, some hardship, just like our brother talked about, his heart being broken. And then they took matters into their own hands and decided to find relief someplace else. You know, we're all subject to it. There's not a one of us in this room that is not subject to this. If we ever let go of our walk with God, fail to hold on to it tight, we set ourselves up for desperate times and perhaps making some desperate decisions. The king, so ticked off by the whole story, as you could imagine, but instead he turns his anger towards somebody else. He tries to blame it on somebody else. And in this case, he blamed it on the man of God, Elisha. It's never a good idea to blame God. I've been through some things that I won't be totally open about here. A lot of people know it. Uh, some hardship within our family and some desperate situations that I feel. And there was a time where I was really angry at God, why He let certain things happen and why He didn't protect certain situations. I don't know if you've ever been there. Didn't make any sense. God, I've given you my whole life. I've done everything that I think you've asked me to do. I've gone wherever you've wanted me to go. Sometimes places that I didn't even want to go. And all I asked was that you would not let this thing happen. And there was some time that I was angry with God. I'm saying that not to suggest that that's a good idea, but just to be honest and open with you that that's, that's where I had gone at a couple times in my life. And I can tell you that nothing good comes from being in that state. You've got to work through it and uh, deal with it. Wrestle with God and be open with other brothers and sisters. But... This king decided to take his anger out on Elisha. He was getting ready to have his head lopped off. Let's read on. Verse 32. Now Elijah was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. The king sent a messenger ahead. But before he arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Don't you see how this murderer is sending someone to cut off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold it shut against him. It's not the sound of his master's footsteps behind him. While he was still talking to them, the messenger came down to him, and the king said, This disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow... And he goes on and talks about how everything's going to turn around. Elisha, even himself, spiritual giant, strong, walked with God, God's man, God's prophet, God's leader of Israel spiritually at this time. He even has a moment of panic when things are really desperate, doesn't he? You see that? He's afraid. He wants these elders to protect him. You probably would too. But he wavered in his faith just a little bit. We don't get this feeling that he was totally trusting God with every fiber of his being. But instead, he wanted these elders to watch out for him as well. He says to the 
people coming after him, that everything's going to turn around. The exorbitant price for a donkey's head was going to be cheap the following day. And so would everything else. Verse 2. The officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could this happen? You will see it with your eyes, answered Elijah, but you will not eat of it. This guy was being called out, not only for his lack of faith, but I think really his cynical attitude, his doubting, sarcastic attitude that God could possibly do anything for him. Uh, <clears throat> have you been there before? Where you read promises in the Bible, and you know they're for you, they're written there, all the good things are there for us, and all the bad things are there for us as well. But we sometimes scoff at the good when we're in a bad place spiritually. Because God hadn't acted at the time we wanted Him to act, it's easy to have this cynical attitude towards God. Does prayer really work? Does the fellowship really encourage me? Is the Bible really true for me? And, uh, you know, this man had a very sarcastic thing, and you'll find out in a few minutes what happened to him as a result of that. As the story goes on, we get into this next section, beginning in verse 3. And to me, these are the heroes of chapter 6 and chapter 7. Four guys hanging out, exiled from their city, experiencing the famine, but they've got things that are even worse. Let's look in verse 3. Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, Why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we will die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, we will live. If they kill us, then we'll die. They, they were jacked up, no doubt about it. But their reasoning was really good, right? They had already resolved to the fact that death was right around the corner. And why should I just sit here and wait for it to happen? Maybe, just maybe... If I take a step in one direction or the other, God will do something. And so they reason, you know, look, we're, we're goners anyway. We might as well make a, make a try at this thing. And so that's exactly what they do in the next verse. Verse 5. At dusk, they, go, they got up, went into the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, not a man was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and the Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp and entered one of the tents. They ate and drank and carried away silver, gold, and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some of the things from it, hid them also. Can you imagine how fired up these guys were? Like here they are, 
banished from their own people because they had this disease. They're out there, the four of them. Some commentators say it was a dad and three sons. Doesn't really matter, though. But here they are, just kind of huddled together, four lepers, waiting to die, nothing to eat. They can't really go back into the city because they were kicked out. And so they, instead of just being paralyzed by their condition, they took a step, they took a chance, and tried to see if maybe God wouldn't work on their behalf one more time. And so they enter this camp. There's nobody around. They start munching on all this kind of stuff that was left behind. They're stashing away gold and silver and who knows what else. They take it, they run, they hide it, they stash it, and they go back in for some more. God had blessed them that day, didn't He? And they were just probably laughing, slapping each other on the back. Who cares? We still got leprosy, but at least we're eating and we're pretty rich right now. But then in the midst of their celebration, and celebrate they should, they say this in verse 9, because it says, then they said to each other, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let us go at once, report this to the royal palace. So they went and called out to the city gatekeeper and told them, We went into the Aramean camp, and not a man was there, not a sound of anyone, only tethered horses and donkeys, and the tents left just as they were. The gatekeeper shouted the good news, and it was reported within the palace. You know, somewhere along the way in their celebration, and their pain being eased and their needs being met, they realized that God had given all of this to us. And if we hoard this for ourselves, God is not going to be happy. And so it came upon them that not only did God bless them personally, but God intended to bless them so they, in turn, could be a blessing to their people that were starving just as much as they were just a, a little while ago. And I think this is an important principle for us to remember. It's so easy, and I'm saying for myself too, it's so easy to take God's blessings for granted. It's so easy to take things that are, are, are blessings from God as entitlements from God. Well, God's supposed to do it anyway. And if we're not careful, we can hoard the goodness and the blessings of God and forget about sharing them with our brothers and sisters, whether it's here locally or around the world, or even with our neighbors and our family and acquaintances. You know, God helped you become a Christian because He loved you and He wanted to bless you with that. And He set everything up. He put you in the right place at the right time. He worked the soil of your heart and got it just where He wanted it to be. And then somehow or another, He put the right person in your path. And maybe they invited you over for dinner to start, or maybe they invited you to a church service, or maybe they invited you to a Bible talk, or, or maybe they just listened as you spilled out your heart 
But nonetheless, God set all of that up so you could see what He was about to bless you with. And then as we studied the Bible, we got to a point where we were all ready to say, Jesus is Lord, right? Every one of us did that. That's a Christian. If you haven't made Jesus the Lord of your life, then I don't mean this to be critical or negative or condemning, but you're just simply not a Christian. Because you have to make Jesus the Lord of your life in order to receive forgiveness of sins. And then throughout our lives, we have been able to be a blessing to other people. Other people have become Christians as a result of us sharing our faith, right? How many of you became a Christian all by yourself? Nobody? I find that shocking. Not. (laughs) Think about all of us in this room and the people that we've been able to serve. Whether it's a simple meal or helping a move from one city to another. Or being there. As the brother shared earlier about people that have passed away. Nonetheless, these, these men, they understood that their blessing was to be shared with other people. I want to thank you personally for the way that you do give to foreign missions and especially the Baltics and Nordics. Uh, Lori and I have the opportunity to go over there twice a year and work with these people. These people over the last eight years that we've been going have become really good friends and they are so grateful to not only your region but all the other contributing churches that give money to that. And it's a living example of seeing that your plenty is now being able to be shared with people that don't have as much. And whether you realize it or not, you are indirectly connected to people that become Christians, marriages that are strengthened, children that are, are helped uh, in, in the Baltic and Nordic countries as a result of your generosity. And I just want to thank you personally for you doing that. I know you're getting ready to take up a special contribution. seems like these things can be taken. uh, Well, it's our annual thing. It's what we always do. But please try to remember that when you give to this, there are real live people on the other side of the world that are receiving the blessings from you sharing and not hoarding. Amen? So this should be a great news to not only the king and all the people living there, but look at the king's response to the good news. The king got up, verse 12, in the night and said to his officers, I will tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They now, uh, they, they know we are starving, so they left the camp to hide in the countryside, thinking they will surely come out And then we will take them alive and get into the city. So he has this negative attitude. He's got a blessing being handed to him. And he thinks of the worst possible situation if he believes the good news. The story goes on. And for the sake of time, you can read it yourself. Basically, the city is blessed. The officer that had the cynical remarks... Everything that Elijah said was going to happen to him happened exactly as it was. And he died 
being trampled by the people running in to get the supplies from the city. And so I've got a question to ask you as you think about all the characters that we just read about. First of all, your city is under siege. Do you believe that about your city or not? And in fact, you are under siege this very moment and will be when you leave the confines of the auditorium, go out throughout the week. But then, which of these people are you? Are you more like the bitter king that blames God and others for the problems that you have? Are you the cynical officer that potentially drags other people down because you refuse to have faith and believe? I hope we're all at least a little bit like the four lepers that suddenly realize my newfound blessing is not only from God, but it's to be shared with others. And I hope we're also like Elijah, who in spite of the drama and the hardship and the circumstances and the tensions of what was going on, continued to trust God and carry out His commands to the faithful end. Amen? There's a song we sing. I'm just going to read you a couple lyrics. I will not disgrace the worship service by attempting to sing it solo. But it's called Be Strong, Take Heart. And the chorus goes like this. Be strong, take heart, and wait for the Lord. Which is kind of the moral of the story, isn't it? Be strong, take heart, and wait for the Lord. Though an army besiege me, I will not fear. Though an army besiege me, I will not fear. And it goes on from there. I don't know if you can totally relate to the desperate situation that these people were in. Maybe not today, but I guarantee you someday you're going to feel some of these things. In every verse of the Bible we read, every prayer that we offer up, every service that we attend, every fellowship that we engage in, every time we have an opportunity to be strengthened personally and as a congregation, these are all to prepare us for these desperate times so that we don't take things into our own hands and make some of the mistakes that were here. Amen.